Welcome to The Real Build. I'm your host, Bill Ryman, your broker builder, and this is episode 177 of The Real Build. And today we are talking ADUs, accessory dwelling units. And I had a great guest on to talk about ADUs. It's Whitney Hill, part owner of Snap ADU out of California. Real quick, what is an accessory dwelling unit for those of you that do not know? They're smaller homes ranging from 400 to 1,200 square feet, and they're built on an existing residential property that already has a main home on it. So an ADU can actually be used in a variety of different ways, such as providing additional housing for family members, generating rental income, and also, most importantly, it's becoming more popular in many countries to address housing shortages and create more affordable housing options. So we talk about all this. I'm excited for this week's episode. So here you go. Welcome to The Real Build, the show that shows you exactly what you need to look for in construction and real estate. I am your host, Bill Ryman, your broker builder, and each week I will teach you exactly what you need to look for, whether you are buying, building, or selling a house. I interview top people throughout real estate and construction, give you a better perspective prior to making one of the biggest investments of your life. I will also discuss my personal experiences as a luxury builder and real estate broker and answer your questions about the process. With that being said, welcome to The Real Build. Whitney Hill, welcome to The Real Build. How are you doing today? Thanks, Bill. I'm doing well. How about you? Good, good. Excited to have you on. You and I were just talking about I have not had anybody on in your uh, world of the building world. So before we get into that, though, I want to find out who is Whitney Hill. Well, I am a uh, 15 year into my career uh, builder who never thought I'd be running a construction company, mm-hmm. started out in operations management and strategy consulting and always had the entrepreneurial bug, didn't know how to apply that. Um, and you know, a series of different experiences led me to accessory dwelling units here in San Diego. And now Snap ADU is the largest stick builder of ADUs in Southern California. So we've been around for about three years, and it's been so exciting to see how your path of previous experiences can position you to really grow a business quickly. Let's go into that a little bit. I like to dig deeper into the past and on the show, too. So why construction over other industries? Why did you choose it? Because not everybody, you know, growing up, they're like, oh, I can't wait to build a house or be in the construction world or and so on. So why did you choose construction over other industries? I set out to pick real estate, thought I was going to be doing investing. So I'd gotten interested in that, listening to podcasts while I was still working at Bain & Company um, as a management consultant. Um, And so I didn't know that I would be in construction. But looking back, I was always interested in design. I can remember um, as maybe a middle schooler, like in the summer, I'd be looking through books of house plans that my parents had because they were thinking about building a house. um, And I would draw my own and even make them like 3D out of poster board. I actually hadn't remembered this until just last couple of years um, when I kind of had a flashback when we were doing some of our plans. So I think there was latent interest there, but I got pulled it in more specifically to construction during the real estate um, development path. I went into it thinking I would do small multifamily, you know, pick some B and C level assets and, and renovate those and, and hold those. Um, but in the meantime, I got to know um, someone who was doing fix and flips on high-end properties outside of New York City where I lived at the time. So I agreed to be his partner on those. He was a general contractor and I was the financing partner 
partner that grew into a bigger role as I learned more. Um, and so I actually got exposure to general contracting that way as we tried to start scaling what we were doing. So I learned more about project management basics and just you know understanding how uh, residential construction works. So then I moved out to California. I heard about accessory dwelling units and was excited to try to get involved in that space more locally. And a lot of the um, same uh, ideas that we were applying to those flips where we were actually doubling the the square footage of these houses that were maybe a 1200 square foot Cape Cod. We were putting a second story on them. You were dealing with a lot of constrained space and existing requirements that you had to work around. And that's quite similar with accessory dwelling units, which are small homes on existing um, residential properties that already have a main home. So you have a lot of different building constraints, there's setbacks you have to deal with. So it was a lot of the same ideas. Um, and so then I'd already been exposed to construction for a while and got very excited about adding general contracting capacity specifically targeted to ADUs. California has passed a series of regulations over the last few years, making it easier for homeowners to build ADUs. So once that regulation hurdle and permitting fees were reduced, it seemed clear to me that the next bottleneck was going to be general contractor capacity. So that's how I found myself here. It's amazing to hear like a lot of the contractors that I have on the show too, like the past stories, like you just said, you were creating things as a kid and you just remembered that you were doing that too. I used to do the same thing. And, you know, as a kid, you never really think you're going to get into construction, but you know, you go from creating it as a kid to now you're creating reality as an adult, which was pretty cool to think about too, you know, and yes. the things you're building as well. Talk about, ADUs a little bit um, and what they are, go deeper into that a little bit because the audience doesn't really, and just for those, some people know what they are, but some don't. And then the types of, you know, accessory dwelling units that you are building and what that's all about. So let's go deeper into that. Sure. So accessory dwelling unit refers to a smaller home, typically between 400 and 1200 square feet, which could fit up to three or four bedrooms um, that are on uh, residential properties. And this is um, a phenomenon across the country. It's most prominent in California because of statewide regulations that made them easier to build, but they can be different types of ADUs. They might be conversions of existing space out of an existing garage, maybe a basement even. Um, you can also add on to an existing home if you wanted to bump out the back and add an accessory um, dwelling unit there, or you can build an entirely separate structure, just another small home home on the same property. Um, so at the state level here in California, we removed any minimum lot size requirements mm -hmm. and only have a four foot side and rear setback requirement um, from the property lines, which means that suddenly all these properties could now fit ADUs. Um, and the meanwhile, there was also a bunch of, um, there's a bunch of regulation um, that's in place to increase housing um, development. So we're trying to create over 500,000 um, dwelling units in the state of California over the next five years. I say we because it really is a collective effort across all the municipalities. Um, the builders have to step out, step up to um, to meet that demand, and of course, the homeowners are going to have to be the ones moving in. Um, so all of this is just creating this massive demand for ADUs that we've been trying to scale up to keep pace with. Um, and as we've been kind of on this journey, though, there are other examples of ADUs across the world that um, are already kind of have gone down this path. So we actually found this company. Well, they found us. I should say, out of Australia, uh, because in Sydney, this has happened 10 or 15 years ago, where they passed um, regulation to incentivize ADUs as a solution to housing. So we actually are using technology that was developed out of Australia for the same purpose. And now it's been tweaked just to allow for our regulations so that we can figure out what will fit on people's properties. 
Yeah, so you know, as far as that, so you're converting garages, you're adding on the houses, you're adding basically livable area from 400 to 1200 square feet is basically what you're doing. And it's just, uh, and having a four foot setback. So you're, you're basically, those homes are pretty tight together. Correct. As far as that. Well, they're also building separation requirements. So in a lot of cases, you have to be 10 to 12 feet from the primary home as well. And if there is another building on the neighboring property, you typically have to have a setback from that as well. So I would say closest you're really looking at is probably 10 feet. Um, between the homes. But mm-hmm. honestly, when you're looking at a lot of the you know track home developments out here, that's what these are built at anyway. So I think it, you know, these tighter developments is something um that the region has grown used to. And also a lot of the inhabitants of these ADUs are family members. Um, yeah. Maybe half to 60% of our clients are either putting um, aging parents in their ADU. Mm. They might be putting a, a, a couple of young adults who can't afford the housing market. They might change that over time and at some point rent it, but it's become much more commonplace here, which um, makes it you know not as perhaps as strange as it would seem to do this um, in somewhere that didn't have the kind of housing situation that we do. Yeah, because coming from Florida, you know, you don't really hear about ADU. Well, at least where I'm at down in Southwest Florida too. And when, obviously when I came across you, uh, I was like, man, this is interesting. This is actually, it's a different world out there was when it comes to this kind of stuff too. So, I mean, what, another question I wanted to ask you is like, what type of properties can you have an ADU on? Is there regulation with that? Is it anything goes, how's that all work too? This, of course, varies, um, but in, yeah. in some areas, you can add them even to commercial spaces. But in California, it's um, on residential properties, both single family and multifamily. Um, and the interesting part about the multifamily ones is if you had, let's say, a 200 unit complex, you can also convert um, the non-habitable space, things like laundry rooms or garages that might be underneath the units. Mm-hmm. Um, you can convert up to um, as many units that would be 25% of the total. So if you had 200 units, Units, you could have up to 50 conversions of in existing space. A lot of times it's not possible unless you have sort of an interesting situation with a lot of garage bays or something. Um, but, you know, a lot of folks are, are looking into that. Um, as far as the geographies, though, um, you'd be surprised where all this is cropping up. Um, it's happening in Austin and Denver, Philadelphia. New York State is looking at legislation. It's huge in Portland and has been for quite some time. Um, so it's really just, in, you know, more urban areas that we're seeing it. Um, and also as far as um, just the types of of, um, innovative ways to do this um, in, in some places where the single family homes have really um, not been a match to the current population. You're seeing homes split into two units um, where one is an accessory dwelling unit and then the other um, remains the primary home. So there's lots of different ways to do this. Um, and it's perhaps a good segue to talking about what we've decided to specialize in, because I think that's why Snap ADU has been so successful, is that we picked our lane of detached new construction ADU. So when we first started three years ago, we just said ADUs, right? ADUs in San Diego. And that could have meant anything from converting a garage to doing one of these multifamily developments that really has a different set of criteria and um, skills than just doing um, detached new construction. That said, there are other people who say, I will only do conversion work. I don't want to deal with new construction. So it's just a different set of variables. And for us, we picked that lane um, because it matched um, what skills we already had in-house. My um, co-founder, was a general contractor for about 13 years um, prior to teaming up with me. And he had a custom home background, um, larger scale projects. So we felt like the the detached new construction was a good match for us. 
having that background, let's go into that a little bit too, because obviously that's important because you guys come from, I was looking into your company, you guys come as more, like you said, new construction, but a design build aspect of it too. So talk about that a little bit. Um, you know, the one-stop shop, uh, as far as accessory dwelling units, I, I know that's an important thing and kind of your style of doing it is that's the difference maker too. being that one-stop shop. Uh, what's the importance of that? I can't even imagine not being design built at this point, yeah. but we started out um, without an in-house design and permitting. So we brought that in two years ago now um, and a couple of reasons for that. Um, one, as we were starting to build more of these, we realized we needed to start standardizing what we were doing with construction. Because keep in mind, when we were first building this company, we were in the throes of COVID. So we were just seeing all those supply chain issues where we couldn't get XYZ in stock or the lead time was 20 weeks and it just wasn't going to work. So we started trimming down what we would even put into plans as far as window sizes, door sizes, um, shower units that were standard. Um, so as we started to spec out more of that, we realized we really just need to have this in-house. Um, so that was when we brought our drafters on um, and we're able to better capitalize on all the stuff that we're learning when we actually go to build these. So there are lots of architects or design companies that have specialized in ADUs. That seems to be where people gravitate. It's also where a lot of the money as far as um, financing for tech is leaning into the ADU space. They're going into the design and, and feasibility and permitting piece. But those companies are not then building them. No one wants to get their hands dirty in the actual construction. So our advantage has been in having to stub our toe on every problem that's going to happen on the site. So at this point, we front load so much work, we would have just like found out by chance before. So the other vital component of being design permit build is that we can commit to our prices very early on. Within the first four to six weeks of the project, we're locking the construction price, even though it's going to take us six to nine months to get this thing permitted uh, because we now know exactly what utility upgrades will be required, what kind of panel adjustments will have to be made, um, if we should be looking out for overhead lines, if we should look out for sewer cleanouts. Like There's a myriad of these things that we've now incorporated in our proposal process that we then just verify during our feasibility, which is kind of the first step of our design. Um, so we have the whole project mapped out within the first four to six weeks, and then it just becomes execution. I love that. I mean, that right there is a difference maker as far as you guys and your company too, is map. Like you just said, you map out the whole entire project off the bat. That's very hard to do, especially in the world we live in today too. Uh, you know, just like you said, with the delays and everything, it's starting to get a little bit better. Uh, you know, being a few years out of COVID now or a couple of years out of COVID, but it's, it's still, you know, there's still demand. You're dealing with the demand over where you're at as well too. How, how are you handling being transparent, more transparent if some kind of issue does come up? Uh, you know, obviously you're locking in the price too, but that's very hard to do in the world today. So how are you working that out right now? I'm just interested to hear that as far as if something does come up uh, during the build. Yes. Um, so we, of course, do have carve outs in our construction okay. contract that locks the price for the known scope of work. So if we uncover bones on site, which just happened, <laughs> we had to like bring in an archaeologist. Oh, wow. It was nuts. <laughs> yeah. Um, so if that happens, I mean, that there was a carve out for that. And it's always a judgment call of how much of an unforeseen cost we're going to pass on to the homeowner versus we're going to absorb for a better customer experience. So I think at this point, though, we've fumbled the ball enough times that we feel pretty confident we've caught 95% of the big watch outs. So we don't have to, you know, chance absorbing that as much as we would have if we locked prices like two years ago when we didn't know as much. Um, so how do we handle it? Um, if at all possible, we will try to absorb it. I mean, 
big hits too. I'm talking like 20, 30,000, oh, especially wow. if it was something that we feel like we should have foreseen. Yeah. But keep in mind too, that's a benefit of focusing on these larger jobs. So there is more room in there for us to absorb some of that because really it's taken us as much project management power to handle a large 1200 square foot unit with a garage as it would a 500 square foot studio. So that was the other reason we pushed towards these bigger projects because it allows us to have more levers to pull with customer service because the margins are simply larger. Let's go into that a little bit too, as far as the communication process with you guys. I'm interested to hear because having how many projects at once do you have usually commonly going on? Just question as far yeah, as that. right now we have um, 48 live and it's okay. about a third between design, permitting and build. Gotcha. So to handle, you know, 48 project projects all at once, that's a lot of communication, you know, keeping the clients in, in tune of what is going on. So how are you handling that process too? Yes, <laughs> this is our theme in 2023. Our theme prior to this was building all the processes and sort of covering our bases with contracts and, yeah. you know, all these um, checklists. But now we're really trying to improve the customer experience. And part of that is the communication. So uh, we've templated out as much as we can with known checkpoints during the process so that the client never has to ask what's going on. They always know where we are and what's next. Um, a big part of that is leveraging our project management software, which was one of the first things um, that we set up when when Mike and I partnered. So when I met him in um, 2020, um, he was doing about a million and a half of revenue, had five people on his staff, and they were doing it all with email and Excel and phones like a lot of you know smaller shops would. So I was able to, in parallel, set up um, our project management software with all these jobs in mind, knowing what we needed to accommodate. But it helped because we had this real company we were trying to put into this project management software, which allowed us to iterate very quickly quickly to get to a workable um, uh, system. So once we had that system up, we were able to put our new jobs in there, um, have the client facing side of that where they can see our job schedules. And as we've gotten more and more confident in our process and our timelines, um, we're able to show the client more and more. So now they can see the entire schedule of what's going to be happening. Um, so that massively helps in the communication because they can at any time check in on what's going on. But in, in addition, we're layering on sort of a, a templated reach out that tells them like, we just submitted your construction documents, expect to hear from us at blah, blah, blah point. So you're always kind of telling them what's coming next. That's, I mean, what you're doing right there is awesome too, because it, it the, doing the touch points consistently too. I mean, I, I need to get better at it. Everybody needs to get, I mean, we, there's, there's always growth and communication. Let's put it that way. As far as how, how we can do it, the software too, uh, we're using a platform called co-construct is what we use. Mm -hmm. It's more, uh, design for residential contractors and, um, you know, trying to get as much information out to the client as possible and the building and the timelines and so on too, because I mean, there's always something that happens and juggling with subcontractors and how busy they are too, but it's always about being open and honest throughout that process. So if something you know, goes wrong. Let's go into that a little bit with you guys too, because managing the 40 plus projects that you guys have, there's going to be something that happens. How are you dealing with that? How are you addressing? I always like to ask contractors these questions because I always get great answers too. And it helps everybody because this shows all about actually what to look for when building, buying, selling, whatever, when it comes to construction. So, um, you know, what do you do? during a time like that or a situation like that? 
I would say our approach has evolved significantly. So we used to be in the camp of sort of avoiding things, like not reaching out in case they might ask you something, like not wanting to follow up after the job in case they might have warranty claims. So I felt like it was sort of this like, don't poke the bear mentality where it's like almost <laughs> minimize the client interaction. But now with this new focus that we've been talking about, we really do engage them in almost everything. Um, and so a specific example, and we use Builder Trend, um, which actually acquired co-constructs, yeah, I'm sure yeah. you know, um, they have a feature called Daily Logs, which is like it sounds, it's just a place to um, record information, take photos, um, and then tag any other team members who might need to be involved to take care of it. Um, and first, we, we didn't start using those until maybe a year ago. Um, but then maybe three months ago, we started saying, you know what, let's let the client see these because then they're going to see all the stuff that we're catching on site, what we're doing to take care of it. Um, and we kind of get ahead of it. So they're actually getting real-time visibility into those problems as well. But what we found is that if you just allow them a window into that, they see that you're on top of it. And even if there are problems, they're seeing you take care of them. So they get more comfortable with the idea that things will come up and then Snap will react. So we gave them that window to sort of get ahead of any of those problems. Um, and if we do have another, you know, a, a really big issue come up where it's like, oh, requires a conversation, we often will try to have um, options on the path forward already going into that conversation conversation with them. So maybe we got a comment back from the city during permitting where it was some really nuanced situation where it triggered some like zoning thing we didn't even know about because it's not come up and it means we have to move the ADU, right? Um, those those things have happened to us. So going to the client with two different scenarios of what we could do from here, the cost implications, how SNAP will step up to kind of absorb some of it if we can, that's that's sort of our our, um, our, our process for doing it now. I love that. I love the open transparency. I mean, because like with the software, for example, a lot of builders don't go to that full extent. Like you just said, they don't showcase everything. You, I mean, you're showcasing the notes, the problems that you guys have had, how you're fixing it. You never think to do that because you think it's going to create more problems. And I always talk about this, too, as I think a lot of builders, they think more ahead of what the issue is actually going to be than what it truly will be. You know, like that's why they hesitate to tell customers ahead of hand. They kind of beat around the bush, drag things out rather than dealing with it head on. I've come to the point where just deal with it, tell them what's going on. If there's a price increase or something happening, get ahead of it right away so that later and not set the expectation is what I always like to say. So I love what you're doing, what you just said about the notes, like, you know, because Right now, like with us, we're we're showing pictures and we're showing schedule, but there's not much, you know, and they, there's the message platform on there, but they actually show the job notes. That's smart. I mean, because that just opens more transparency. That takes away the wondering of what's going yes. on out there, too, because a lot of them, I, I'm not sure how you guys are in California, but a lot of the people we're building for aren't here all the time. So mm -hmm. it's just, you know, we're dealing with like 90% of people don't live here full time. So the more transparent we can be, the better. So I love what you said there. That's awesome. And this theme of transparency, well, I think um, has been something we've leaned into from the beginning. Um, the first frontier for us that was sort of scary, like you just mentioned with like showing the client all of your daily log notes. Um, the first frontier we faced that with was pricing. Um, historically, it's really hard to get numbers for this kind of stuff. People don't want to put it on their website. They make you call them or you know something to that effect. Um, within the first six months to a year, we started publishing the vertical build pricing. And so for the structure itself and all the finishes directly on our website alongside the plan. 
plan. So we do have, you know, like 30 plans that people can pick from. They can modify them, but if they wanted to take that one off the shelf, it would be this price, right? Um, so then we started building from there too. It's like, now we'll tell you the basic site um, package for site work. Um, here's our design price. Here's exactly how we charge for any design modifications. Put it all online. Um, and honestly, this was for a number of reasons. It was it was to organize ourselves. So we're like, we're gonna have to track all this stuff somewhere. We might as well have it publicly available. Same thing with like the regulation. So each of the 16 jurisdictions we work in has slightly different regulations on setbacks and building separation and fire requirements. So we started just housing it all publicly. But um, the great benefit of this is that it is so transparent. So when you're having a conversation with your with your potential um, ADU client, they've already seen the pricing. They already know the ballpark. They're not going to be shocked. They respect that we're putting it all out there and that we're holding ourselves accountable. Um, so that transparency mentality, again, it was hard to get there. Like in the beginning, everyone was like, we're, we're going to put our prices there? Like people are horrified. But now, again, we can't imagine not. <laughs> so same thing with the logs. You just get used to it. And then it's just how it is. I think that goes back into kind of the old school mindset of and I've talked about the this on that this show before is it goes back to that old school mindset of you know a lot of the old school they didn't want to share their information they didn't want to share their their secret strategies or how they're you know doing great and now it's like a new world and that's like like with this show too it's like Anybody could find out how I do business just by listening to this podcast. I mean, there's 176 episodes of me talking about what we do and my guests do and the right ways to do it. So, but nobody is going to do it like me. Nobody's going to do it like Whitney. It's just, we're different in that aspect. There's one of you, there's one of me. And it's, and it's like, why not help each other get better in this industry? Because the construction industry has always looked down upon because somebody somewhere has always had a bad experience and then they come to us and then we got to It's almost like we're selling a good experience to them and trying to take their mindset away from that bad experience. So I love what you're doing as far as being more transparent. I think more contractors need to do what you're doing and go ahead with that strategy and just let it out there more because a lot of them are hesitant. It's just what you just said. It's just they're hesitant. They're thinking way too far ahead on what the outcome's going to be rather than what it's really going to be. Yes. So it's I I commend you guys for doing what you're doing and obviously the growth shows and I mean in a sh short amount of time how well you guys are doing is awesome. Well, thank you. And I think another reason that folks are reluctant to put out pricing is they just don't know, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that goes back to the whole front loading the work. Yeah. If you map out the whole project in the first six weeks, like you will have a real number. So I think that was lacking too for us as well. We didn't know all these numbers up front. So there was a little bit of, um, you know, just picking a number and then seeing if we were going to make money, like for real in the first <laughs> few months of this, because we just had to get started. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that we weren't paralyzed by feeling like we needed to know the exact answer, because I don't think we would have been able to get there anyway. And just by getting some of these jobs started, we learned along the way. And as my partner says, we we paid the dumb tax <laughs> quite a bit in the first few years here. We're paying less dumb tax now. So it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Through personal experience and you guys are doing great jobs. It's And one thing you brushed on too, I want to talk about is, is team approach and the importance of building that team. Obviously, you know, you guys have built a team, you built the foundation Let's talk about that, like a having a team approach, having a good team backing you up at Snap ADU and what you guys are doing there. 
Yes, we have a fantastic team. We love working together, um, truly. So it makes this all even more fun. Um, so we have 16 uh, full-time employees um, and then an army of subcontractors. Um, so with that team, we um, had to pick folks who were versatile. Um, and on some of that, we got lucky. Some of Mike's crew, who he already had when I met him, turned out to be these folks who actually really embraced the tech and you know are still here. And it's just a wildly different operation than they were thriving in before, too. So it's, it's great to see that kind of evolution. But as we were hiring for some of the newer roles in our company, it was important to pick people who could both have the strategic vision, but also roll up their sleeves and, and do some of the foundation lane with us. So it's really been the sweet spot of people kind of in the early middle of their career where they know enough that um, you know they can take something and run with it, but they're still excited to innovate. They still know how to innovate. They're still using the tech themselves. Um, so it's been sort of finding um, folks who are, who are like-minded. And then that's built on itself too, where a good number of our current team have been referrals from our own networks, which is fantastic if you can hire people that you want to work with again. So, um, you know, it's, it's really just meant that we've been able to evolve um, even more quickly because these great people have taken the reins in their own department and push us forward, you know, beyond what Mike and I could have done. And I feel like, you know, maybe a year, year and a half ago, when we really started to see some of that, that's when Mike and I as like co-founders really felt like we were doing a great job here because finally it wasn't us that were, you know, the main momentum behind the company it was, it was the whole team. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that really felt great that we'd gotten to that point where we had all of our bases covered and other folks were running with making the business better. That's that's so important what you just said. I mean, because they're seeing your vision too. You guys had the vision, you set the vision, and everybody wants to be a part of it too. And that's why you've built that great team. You have those core values that continue to, you know, have everybody set on the outcome of what you guys are doing. And and it's awesome to see everything you just said. Um, you know, 16 employees, even your subcontractors and it's hard for builders that you know to get subcontractors on the same page have that expectation you know like with us like we we're known for spotless job sites we're like you know i feel like we're just policing you know just pick up your trash don't leave your bottles there don't do but that's who we are and over time they've learned that so you know every time i do a video now people are a story on my instagram people are like man your job sites are so clean how do you do that it's because over time, setting that expectation of who we are and what we are as a company. And, you know, everybody, everybody respects that. Even our subcontractors, they say it too. You know, my painter, uh, I had a conversation with him. He said, we're the hardest builder he paints for. And I said, well, that's probably a compliment. And he said, well, to you, it is. Uh, but, you know, he's like, to me, it's hard. But, you know, he's like, I like you guys and so on. And he goes, I respect it because we... You know, when I jokingly say when we blue tape a house for final punch out, it looks like Smurfs blew up. So it's just, (laughs) you know, it's but it's it's, you know, hiring people that are willing to do that. We've had past painters that couldn't handle how strict we were with punch outs, but we found the right people and putting those right people in place. And what you said is a million percent spot on. 
I think that's so important what you're highlighting about the the consistency, it sounds like too, that you've been able to cultivate. Um, and I think how that plays out for us with our subcontractors, um, we pretty quickly wanted to move towards some more fixed pricing just based on square footages or bathroom counts. Um, because again, we we're standardizing all these like main mm-hmm. features. Um, and that was hard to do in the beginning when we didn't have the same track record that we do now. But once you prove yourself to those subcontractors, like, yeah, we're going to start, you know, three to five jobs a month and they're all going to look like this. And it's all this level of quality or whatever it is that is your thing. Um, that consistency makes it an easy yes as well. So I, I think that's important. Um, and one other piece that comes to mind, just based on, based on what you were saying about the quality with your, um, you know, even your clients seeing that too, of course, um, aligning what you're selling at the very beginning of the project with what they're actually going to experience was something that we didn't do a great job of (laughs) early on. So we built out our sales team with these phenomenal people who are just wonderful with homeowners and painting the vision and being so responsive. Um, And, you know, that whole part of our business was way ahead of where some of the rest of it was for a while. So then by the time it got to construction, it just, it wasn't in concert with the the high touch sort of mentality um, that it was during sales. And that goes back to my point about these templated reach outs so people know what's going on. We had to continue that same experience throughout the whole process. There was going to be this massive letdown. Um, So making sure that you're crystal clear on what you're delivering matches what you're selling was also very important for us to get right. Yeah. And I think, I mean, a lot of people there's, I mean, not a lot of people, but there's quite a few builders in my area that, you know, they can sell a bag of ice to an Eskimo, but they don't build what they say they're going to build too. And it's just like, I'm sure you experience that too, especially when times are busy too. a lot of builders or a lot of people kind of come out and they want to go into construction with limited experience, which is fine. You can learn it as long as you have the mentality that you're going to take care of people. But a lot of people get hurt during those times too, because it goes kind of to the Rob, Peter, pay Paul approach, you know, and then once things slow down, they can't afford and the last guy gets burnt. I've seen that happen quite a few times as well. So it is important to, you know, sell it when you're selling your company, you're actually selling exactly who you are. Like you said, that is such a key thing. And it's, and it's, it's, you know, a hundred percent backing everything you say, because a lot of people go, with you, I'm sure, and with us and with good builders, because, you know, they know that in the end, they're going to be taken care of. I always kind of actually say, I tell, and it's one of my things I say when I'm selling our homes is that our clients primarily end up as friends, you know, and and they're, they're, you know, we go out with them after the build, we, we go by their house, we hang out with them. There's a friendship there. I can call them, you know, the calls aren't just strictly business there. How's your family? How's things going? How, you know, there's a connection there too. And that is so important in this industry because it's not, there's not a lot like that to where you have those larger developers, um, you know, big, big time builders that you'll never see the owner or whatever. And I always, and you know, the people don't have those relationships. And and when you're building a high-end home or any kind of home too, there should be a relationship with that client because that client's going to come back again, probably build with you again, refer you to all their friends and family. And then you're going to become friends with them and they're eventually going to become family. That's what I like to say. So it's so important with what you said. Yes. And, and how to keep that, um, you know, personal touch, how, how to maintain that kind of a mentality and culture, even as you are scaling. And I think that's where we had that disconnect, like I was talking about, because 
when it was just, let's say six projects a year, it was easy for one or two project managers to to see that whole thing through and have that personal relationship just de facto because they were doing everything. So as we built out this broader team and it's kind of more of a stage gate process where a lot of different people are going to touch it, um, we too late really <laughs> filled in those, those gaps to make it still feel like a cohesive um, customer centric experience. Um, so how to kind of keep delivering that as you grow is, is tricky because at the same time as you want to, you go out with them and like promote these friendships, with the clients, how can you do that without burning yourself out? Especially, you know, as, as, as owners, it's, it's so tempting to want to be involved in all this, but you just can't. So what are the high value touch points that you can maintain and still give that, that feeling or, and, or have someone on your team kind of carry that torch for you? I agree. And like one thing we did, for example, is, you know, like to keep the people, we hired a warranty coordinator and she just handles everything as far as the warranty handles those kind of touch points after checking in on everybody, maybe every six months, uh, you know, after the first initial closing, checking in after maybe you know, a month first and then going to six months and after a year, then checking in after that. So just constantly touching, you know, the customer and just making sure everything is okay with the home too. Uh, You know, I still have relationships. I took a call today from a customer we built six years ago. He said he had some issues with a sliding glass door, more than likely the bottom uh, just needed to be resealed or recalked. I told him that because he had some uh, remodel guy come over and tell him he's got to replace all his sliders. Mm-hmm. I was like, that is ridiculous. I mean, your house is six years old. Those are meant for Florida. You don't have to replace the sliders. Probably just need to be re- resealed. So it's just little things like that. I'm willing to help him. I'm probably going to go over to his house, just look at it personally, and then set somebody up to fix it for him. But you know, not everybody, like you said, can do that when you have an abundance of homes too. But having that staff in line that can still help and answer the call is what is truly important over the time. So I love what you said there too. Before we wrap up too, I wanted to kind of get into, because you talked about this a little bit too, is innovation. What are you guys doing to innovate in construction? What are some new methods you're bringing in? You and I talked about software uh, to help the customer. What are some other things you're seeing? Obviously, being in California, too, you guys are very tech savvy out there because a lot of the big tech comes that way. But interesting stuff happening in the construction world um, that you're seeing. Yeah, um, just on first the project management side, we've been experimenting with um, tools that allow for more workflow automation. So we already talked about how it's so important to have kind of the, the templated notes they're going to go out or the checklist and all the process stuff. But how to reduce some of that manual element has been a big, big focus for us, too. We're using a tool called Pipedrive for our CRM um, game changer as far as being able to you know handle twice as many leads with the same number of people because of the workflow automation that allows you to almost like mail merge with templates. And we're talking also with like Word and Excel. So if you're somebody who loves their homegrown Excel tool for estimating, like fear not, <laughs> you can put it in there and have it dynamically feed fields from you know your custom pipe drive fields, um, maybe about the square footage or about the electrical situation or whatever. We've got 50 fields that we customize. 
organized, um, all that can populate these things and produce an instant um, proposal that looks completely bespoke. It is completely bespoke, but we're not like doing any manual labor like it would have before. Um, and same thing with the email reach outs. Like if you have the little mail merge fields in those emails, it instantly looks personal, but you've already, um, you know, just streamlined that and perfected it once. You don't have to touch it again. So that, that's been a massive cha game changer for us. Um, the other area we're innovating is in um, 3D visualization. So trying to give our clients um, a better experience up front when they're selecting their floor plan and really understanding what that's going to look like and, and feel like, because we don't have model homes. We're not like a modular production company um, that like has a, a unit sitting there they can tour. Um, so really getting them into the headspace to make those changes during our feasibility and design process versus when we're framing the house and they finally realize what it's going to feel like. That's another big focus for us and giving folks sort of lanes for change that are you know options. You know, here's the three different options for the kitchen layout versus starting with a blank piece of paper. So to facilitate that, we've been investing in some visualization um, and also like dynamic floor plans that will allow you to select different options and kind of configure um, a standard plan. So it's, it's what you see with a lot of track home builders, but we're trying to apply that on a smaller scale um, to ADUs. Yeah. I mean, the 3D thing would be so, I mean, obviously we can do 3D design structure and then you can kind of walk, but to be able to kind of walk the plan would be nice too. I saw something on, I think it was Instagram where they had like a warehouse and they actually had the plan showing on the floor and they were pushing like toilets in and stuff like that. But if we all had a warehouse, that'd be great for us as builders to use. But unfortunately we don't have access to one. So, I mean, we're having to find other strategies too. Um, you know, I've talked to some people about getting more involved with the Matterport cameras where they can actually walk through projects. There's some apps out there too. Um, trying to think of the one other one that uh, open sp space. I don't know if you've heard of that one. That's another app um, similar to Matterport. Uh, I think they just open space sends you a camera and you kind of do your walkthroughs too. But on the planning end, you know, like you said, that it, there are some strategies just to get more people involved because when people can see reality from 2D, 2D is very tough, tough for them to get a feel for it. Um, that's why I go with a lot of back and forth, especially on a larger scale home too. And even on what you guys are doing, it's just to be able to see reality, you know, so they're not going through their bedrooms at home with a tape measure, trying to see it, you know, uh, there's, there's a lot of, there needs to be more creative ways. I think there's more coming out, but, uh, you know, I'm excited to see kind of what the future has to hold with all that as far as technology wise as well. Um, one thing too, I wanted to kind of go one last thing with you. Um, what are you thinking as far as the economy, as far as what you guys are doing too? Um, you know, in the larger scale homes, uh, I think things as far as track homes, I'm I'm kind of seeing maybe that are slowing down there because of the loan heaviness. I think with you guys, I'm guessing you are fine. Uh, just because of the ADA, ADU sectors, you know, it's it's just, I don't know. I'm, that's what I w would love to know. What are you seeing in the building world um, here in the future? I mean, we all wish we had a crystal ball, but we're, what are your expectations for the future? Yeah. 
Um, we definitely see the continued demand, but as far as how folks are actually able to make this happen with financing, that's totally shifted. So um, home equity lines of credit or um, construction loans were really popular, even cash out refinance, of course, when the rates were like 3 or 4%. Um, so when that really shifted last spring, um, it led us to look for other loan products. So right now, a fixed rate second position loan is a popular one. Um, carries a higher interest rate, but you don't have to refinance your original mortgage as part of a contingency of finishing out the construction. So you can, you know, pay pay it down for 20 years if you wanted, but in reality, people will refi it when the rates are a bit better. So there's, you know, it's been a big shift. Um, also, just as far as um, our pricing, like I mentioned, um, we've had to lock prices for longer. We haven't done a price increase in a year now, um, even though our costs have continued to go up. So we've had to be innovative in stripping out costs where we can um, and just being more efficient to, um, you know, make this still palatable for the homeowner. People are already horrified at the square, at the cost per square foot that construction's at, let alone for these small units that have an even higher cost per square foot, mm-hmm. because you're amortizing that cost over these little footprints. You still have the same site work, the same plans, the same kitchen, just way less open space. Um, so we're you know, constantly dealing with that. But as far as where is it going, you hear a lot about um, modular companies trying to make that happen and more and more in factories. Um, we've experimented with that a couple of times now over three years here. And at least for us, we're still finding that with the constraints of these backyards for ADUs, it's difficult to serve most of our clients with that kind of an offering, which is why we've stuck with stick built. Um, That said, there's massive inefficiencies with what we're doing, bringing these crews on site everywhere. We know it's, you know, inherently um, not the most efficient, but how to, how to manage that against the realities of the constraints that we're dealing with, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, there's always learning experience, obviously, and then with constraints and everything too. I mean, now look, I think I hope things get better. I I see the light at the end of the tunnel, you know, and some some aspects of things too. Uh, you know, with a just with materials and everything too, and pricing. I mean, it's I feel like it's been with us here in Florida. Obviously, things started kind of getting better, and then we got hit with a hurricane. So then here goes our drywall prices and our roof prices too. So it's, it's been a battle. Obviously you guys experienced too, you know, I like to let my customers know it's a battle being a contractor where, you know, I feel like more of a therapist on the phone these days than a actual contractor. I'm sure you guys are, you know, just talking to the customer, kind of setting the expectations, letting them know what's, what's happening, what's going on, what's coming and so on too. And uh, same with, dealing with subcontractors, making sure that they're giving the fairest price with the demand the way it is uh, as well. So um love what you said there. One thing I will, I love to wrap this show up with some personal questions um, more about you. One of my favorite questions, I get a great answer on this question every single time. So no pressure, but uh, well, I like to ask, what about you personally? You're obviously building an amazing company that continues to grow each and every day. What lessons have you learned throughout your journey that we should all apply to our own business or lives that can help us grow? Mm. I would say, uh, do not be overwhelmed by the many choices. Just pick a path, any path, and go all in on it. Um, the, the faster you specialize, the faster you're going to become an expert on that topic, and you can always expand out from there. Um, and for reasons we mentioned earlier in the show, I do think that's why Snap is where we are, is that we did not try to be everything to everyone. Um, and that was a huge part of um, our success. I love that. Yeah. I mean, it's 
play the card you've been dealt. I like to say it that way too. stick yes. on the path, stop trying to do yes. other things too. I just actually had this conversation with somebody, but a lot of people try to, you know, do too many different things, like stay in your lane, you know, that's the thing. And then things will come out of that too totally. as well. So love that answer. I always get a great answer. So good job on that one. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. Yeah. And then uh, another question I always like to ask everybody asks about your past. Let's hear about your future. So where will we see Whitney Hill in 10, 15, 20 years from now? Who will you be? <laughs> like another lifetime. <laughs> well, my kids will be in high school and college by then. So um, I would think that we will have grown Snap ADU to a point where we're in other markets. You know, ADUs are more mainstream across the country. Um, I'm involved at a higher level um, you know, with, with guidance of the overall company and helping to mentor you know, future leaders of it. So I'm excited about what opportunities will be there to um, you know, grow grow other people in this space as a result of all the stuff that we're learning right now. No doubt you will get there, especially listening to you today. So I have no doubt you guys are going to grow and you're going to have a lot of success. So, um, yeah, great answer. I, and then my last question, what this show's all about, what exactly do people need to look for when building their next ADU project and why should they choose Whitney Hill and your company Snap ADU mm -hmm. as their go-to builder of choice? you're going to be looking for a property to build an ADU on, make sure that you have access to the construction site. It seems obvious to you and me, but you'd be surprised. Um, you need at least, you know, four to six feet if you're looking for um, getting a machinery piece of machinery through there. Um, if we've got stairs or narrow access, it's just going to radically increase the cost. The other thing that will radically increase the cost is um, having to do grading work. So if you're on a hillside, um, even if it's a giant property, be prepared for tens of thousands more in cost there. So look for a flat lot with lots Lots of access if you're going to be building um, a detached ADU. If you're looking for a conversion, look for a nice large garage, preferably in the front of the house, so it has easy access for that. Um, you can easily section off that part. Um, and then as far as why Snap ADU uh, would be the choice uh, for a lot of our clients, at least, it's because of the transparency, expertise, and follow-through that we have. Um, like we already talked about on the show, um, just the focus and what we do has allowed us to build such an understanding of when we need to advocate for the homeowner. A lot of times the, the city doesn't even know the particular part of the regulation as well as we do in ADUs because they're dealing with the entire building code and we're just doing ADUs. So needing to have that expertise at your back so that any of these unforeseen issues that are kind of up, come up to create a hurdle for your project, you have a trusted partner you can rely on to get you through that. Awesome. Whitney, this has been great, great information today. I really appreciate it. I learned something because like I said, being where I'm at too, ADUs is a new thing to us as well. So hopefully we'll see you down here in Florida at some point as well uh, across the country. But uh, no, I appreciate your time today. Last thing, where can people find and connect with you? Well, thanks, Bill. And you can find us on snapadu.com. Awesome. Whitney, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And as always, thank you all for listening. You all know the routine. Please like, share, comment, five-star reviews only on iTunes because that's what this show deserves with all the great information Whitney just brought. So thank you all for listening. I'll see you on the next episode.